Welcome to Improv Interviews. I'm Margot Escott, a psychotherapist and also an improviser and improv teacher. And I am delighted to have a wonderful guest who I met through my classes with Aretha Spolin Sills. And it's Ira Sikloski. Hi, Ira. How do you do? I'm so thrilled to have you are truly a renaissance man improv acting music filmmaking just so many talents that you have so why don't we start right in with your childhood because as a therapist I like to explore the childhood and uh, tell me about your childhood and did you get the acting bug when you were younger or tell me about that as well sure yeah my parents were always very um, musical and uh, were very supportive of the arts uh, my older sister, four years older, uh, was a fine artist, and uh, we lived close to Manhattan, so they would bring her into the Museum of Modern Art for uh, for art lessons, and uh, they always took us into New York to see shows. So my first memory of being interested in being in front of people in that way <clears throat> was actually in kindergarten, and uh, I think we were doing this cir a circus, and I was the ringmaster. And they had, yeah, <laughs> they had like a, some paper hat and some tails and <clears throat> and I had some kind of baton or something. And uh, we did it in, uh, this was in Queens, New York. So it was in the playground that was in front of the school. And uh, we went out to the playground and the parents were sitting on the monkey bars and the chairs and benches. <laughs> And I, I was to introduce the show, <clears throat> and I came out and I said, ladies and gentle people. And it just, you know, I just was an improv moment, and they all laughed. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, oh, I, I think I like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, getting that first laugh really starts us off, doesn't it? That's okay. terrific. I can just picture a little Ira. That's <laughs> wonderful. So what happened next during school? Did you start taking acting or music classes, or where did you go? Yeah, I mean, uh, as part of the, the school, we did some sort of presentation at the end of um, sixth grade. <clears throat> and this, uh, we moved from Queens to a suburb, Rockland County, New York. I know and, it well. I know it oh, well. you do? Okay. Yeah. Okay. How do you know it? Well, I used to work up in Pomona when I was training to be a therapist. And Nyack, I, before I was even a therapist, I was at the Nyack Consultation Center for Deinstitutionalized Mentally Ill, and I was trying to teach them dance therapy. So, um, yeah. Well, you've got an eclectic background, too. I do, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, North Rockland High School in Stony Point. And um, I think as a freshman, I was in some play I was interested in. And then <clears throat> as a junior, we did the Fantastics, and uh, I played the one of the boys' fathers. And uh, I just remember, we were in rehearsal, and I remember going off into the wings after the number and thinking, I really like this. I, I'm interested to pursue this as a career. And I, so I had that little epiphany in the wings. And then in senior year, I was the lead in Roar the Grease Paint, uh, played a character called Cocky, <clears throat> written by Anthony Newley uh, and Leslie Bracuse. And um, then I got really serious, and I decided to audition uh, for a conservatory for an acting school. Now, along all of this, I had music. Uh, I always had music. I took drum lessons when I was nine years old, serious study. Um, I ended up being very inventive with music in the uh, bands in high school, 
I was in a rock and roll band <clears throat> when we were really good. I was underage, but we'd play the pubs. So right. I had two parallel things going on. And I really had to make a decision because they were both very strong about whether I was going to do acting or pursue music. Um, but I really decided on the acting and uh, auditioned. I auditioned for uh, Purchase College, SUNY Purchase. Um, and I didn't get in, but I was at the top of a waiting list. So I ended up going to New Paltz and um, got cast in show in my, in my freshman year. I think I got cast in four shows. Was that SUNY? SUNY, yeah. All the SUNY systems. <clears throat> that was within my parents' budget, so that was the focus. Great. Yeah. And um, I just remember thinking that I felt like I was absorbing everything I could. I was very serious about the acting reading, uh, about Lee Strasberg and uh, the actor's studio and an actor prepares by Stanislavski. I was really steeping myself. And um, I thought, you know what? I want to retry for Purchase College because I thought it had a better program. So I did, and I got in, and it was very fortuitous I didn't get in the first time because George Morrison was our acting teacher, and he was brilliant, a brilliant acting teacher. Um, so George had a lineage uh, that was connected to Paul Sills uh, at Chicago University where they both went to school together with Mike Nichols, and uh, Paul started Compass Players, and my acting teacher was part of Compass Players. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it was really meant to be this way for me. <clears throat> and so uh, George had all the theater games. Plus, he studied with Lee Strasberg, so we had all the method acting. Yeah. We got both, like, full barrel of both of those disciplines, which was great. So I was really learning how to act. Um, I think it was at my sophomore year where... Um, an actor in another acting company at the school uh, told me about a summer stock audition, and the, he was bringing the director to the school to audition some of the college kids. And he invited me. He said, "You know, we're really, you know, I think that you could do the summer stock." So I remember I auditioned for Mitchell Maxwell, who was the artistic director of Priscilla Beach Theater, and for the summer summer stock, and I got I got the job. It was like my first paid acting gig. First paid, let's go back to that in a second, but had you been doing improv prior to this or was it just all, were there improv classes offered? Uh, with George. Yes, okay. Yeah, it was a conservatory training. It was a full on, you know, um, acting training, uh, improv method every day, um, five days a week, plus dance, plus sword, like every discipline, um, uh, you know, for an actor, speech, we had um, Edith Skinner, who was also teaching at Juilliard. I mean, we had really top shelf uh, instruction. It was great instruction. And uh, so the improv was happening um, simultaneously as everything else was happening. Yes. And then one of my classmates, uh, Bobby Score, uh, wanted to form an improv group out of our classmates, but only six players. We had 32 uh, um, acting students. And um, so he invited me to be in that improv troupe, and we just started um, inventing uh, skits and, and uh, doing improv, and we set up shows in the coffee house in the college, and it was a big hit. We were very, very popular. We were very topical. We were following the Second City model. Right, right, right. Um, and audience suggestions and short-form improv games, and uh, 
you know, it was great. We had a great time. And then what happened was, I'm trying to think what year this was. I think it was my junior year. Yeah, where we decided to do an improv show in the city uh, with our troupe. And uh, Bobby met Paul Sills, probably through George, because George and, and Paul were friends. And uh, so Bobby started helping Paul create some sort of um, underground theater. I just remember he told me he was like chipping paint off bricks to create some sort of a theater with Paul. <clears throat> and Bobby invited Paul to see our Manhattan show. And Paul came. <laughs> and... Uh, we did the show, which was a combination of uh, skits we made up and audience imp improv, audience-suggested improv. And uh, we did the show, and Paul came by, came backstage. And he's, uh, have you ever met Paul? Oh, no, I didn't have the pleasure. No. Oh, okay. He was an amazing guy, and he was very blunt. <laughs> <laughs> So he's, his feedback to us was, your skits suck, but, <laughs> but your improvs are great. <laughs> <laughs> so he invited us to uh, do a story theater show. Wow. Yeah, and we hadn't explored uh, story theater with George at all. It wasn't George's thing. It was Paul's thing that he invented. So uh, Paul, at that time, was living... Uh, Carol, him, Neva, Aretha, um, on 12th Street in the West Village. I think now, it was what, what year was this approximately? What year was this? I want to say, um, let's see, 76, uh -huh. yeah. I just remember there was a raised pizza on the corner. So it was either 12th or 11th Street. Okay. And uh, we go up to stomping ground as well. I was living right, on yeah, right. It's on Mercer Street. Boy, I wish I had known you all. Mercer. I lived on Mercer. <laughs> between Prince and Spring. I, I was 300 Mercer near, next to Broadway. Oh, my God. We were neighbors. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. Anyway, <laughs> small world. So, uh, so Paul, and I remember seeing Neva. She was like three years old, uh -huh. I believe. And um, and I must have seen Aretha, who I think was nine or ten, and uh, and Carol, uh -huh. and so in his in his living room, which wasn't big, there were six of us, six actors, and he started just going through the games and spacewalks, and it was we had done all that with George, but with Paul, it was like levels up. It was just a whole more. It was a deeper experience, more enriched was very spiritual for me. I started to experience things in the space, like visuals in the space, um, light, and, and it was very, like it was an opening. Though I, I had had that previously, um, an opening to spirit and, you know, other things that were otherworldly in my life. <laughs> and so this just opened things more. And I just remember being enraptured with the games and and Paul's coaching was extraordinary. I mean, I can't even describe it. it I always said it changed my molecular structure, like <laughs> did something to my on a cell level. It was, it was extraordinary. And so we started experimenting with the shows. And because I had the music, I, I was a drummer, but I could play guitar and I could play piano and I had an ear for music. And Paul took advantage of that. 
and really taught me how to score. Like that was uh, that was a fundamental part because in my music career later, I do a lot of scoring. Uh, but Paul really gave me the insight about how how the music should play under the scene and when it should start. It was it was amazing, and I had you know, abilities to be able to invent and come up with things. But but he knew where to place it. <laughs> so that was that was fabulous. Our first show was in Florida, uh, Fort Lauderdale, at the Parker Playhouse. And um, I remember uh, we flew down there, and the idea was that he had gathered or was about to gather his original Broadway Story Theater Company with Valerie Harper. And it was designed that we would be the um, kind of the understudies, uh, not formally, but if he needed somebody to fill in a role, somebody got a film job or something, that we would be ready to, to step up into that show. Now, can you explain a little bit what Storybook Theater was? Because some of our listeners may not be aware of it. They oh, may sure. not even know what the compass is. So, <laughs> Yeah, right. Story Theater uh, is an art form that Paul invented um, based on popular stories or Greek mythologies. I mean, he would pick the materials. And it's what it does is it utilizes a third person and a first person uh, narrative. So if you're in the third person and I'm playing a farmer, um, I would do something like, well, the farmer reached down into his bag and he pulled out a shrunken head. <laughs> and so there's the third person of describing while you're in the present doing the action. And then you might switch to first person. He said to his wife, did you know this was in here? And then you switch back to third person or she'll respond and then say, so the farmer put the head back in the bag and sealed it up tight and decided to call the police. You know? So that's the style is yeah, third yeah, person, yeah, first person. Yeah. And it's all about making something out of nothing. So all the space work. So you're creating the weather effects. You're creating the space objects. Um, you know, is all part of creating this fabulous imaginative world that, that can change, transform on a dime. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, so, so that's the show. And we did some of the, uh, the same as the uh, Broadway show. I think we were doing Henny Penny and the Bremontown Musicians. Uh, great folk tales. I remember playing Ducky Daddles in Henny Penny. And <laughs> I was a dog. I, th I think I was doing the Paul Sands parts. <laughs> I'm probably the same height as him. And the same. I was the same build at that time, a little skinnier than I was now. <clears throat> so um, we did. Did you, did you get to perform in Lauderdale or did anybody need an understudy? Uh, well, we did our show with our improv group at the Parker okay. Playhouse in Fort Lauderdale. Okay. Um, we were sharing a hotel with John Prine. I don't know if you know wow, John. Wow, of course. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Kind of a funny story with John Prine. We, we had a van. We had a, like a rental truck, right, to carry the set. And uh, we pulled into the front of the hotel, but we didn't gauge the height properly from the overhang. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we ended up getting stuck. And then John Prine comes out of the hotel. <laughs> we didn't know he was there. And he, he looked at us and he said, oh, you're kind of stuck. <laughs> yeah, we were so embarrassed. Uh, and he asked us if we were musicians. Are you guys musicians? <laughs> like, 
Like musicians don't know how to drive trucks. Right. <laughs> we're going to play some music, but we're actors. So anyway, we solved that problem by letting the air out of the tires and kind of rolling out of it. But that was just uh, kind of extraordinarily funny. So, um, yeah, so we did the show with Paul. He'd warm us up before every performance. And, in fact, uh, the warm-up became part of the show um, in front of the audience. It was, it was mostly a children's audience. Uh, but it was... What, what kind of warm-ups did you do? Oh, uh, we did jump rope. We did spacewalk. We did jump rope. Uh, we might have done give and take warm up, um, uh, space ball. Mm-hmm. Just the basic stuff, just to get us, you know, in front of an audience in the space. And uh, we had a blast. We did it for a month or three weeks. It was our contract. I forget. Um, it was a union job. Um, uh, I had. Did I get my card be- before that? I think I got my card before that. I got my card young doing a touring show. Anyway, so because this was right after college, uh, and which card was that? Uh, the uh, Actors Equity. I got all of them. Screen Actors Guild, and now Actors merged with SAG and and uh, Act- Actors Actors Equity, Actors Equity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so that was that. But then the uh, I guess the the other show with the big stars uh, fell apart. I guess I. I don't know exactly what happened. Um, so our run ended after that particular uh, venue. Um, but we had gold. You know, we had that golden experience, which, uh, you know, helped me uh, tremendously with uh, any improv situation. Oh, my gosh. Now, you mentioned Paul Sand. Can you talk a little bit about Paul Sand? And then we'll get back to Paul Sills. But Yeah, I never met Paul Sand. so oh, I. okay. Yeah, I, I was just referring uh, to him. Okay. Yeah, as yes. I wish I'd met Paul. But, Did you ever meet Viola? I never met Viola, no. Uh-huh. She passed away, I think, if I'm not mistaken, in 94. Um, and I, I don't know where she was. I mean, Aretha could tell you. Aretha, yeah. saw, I think she was out in California. But yeah. no, I never had a chance to, uh, to meet Viola. But working with Paul Sills, I mean, what a master, what a brilliant teacher, performer, and that spiritual aspect. Now, sometimes when we use the word spiritual, people automatically think religion, and it's far from it. You know, when I interviewed Carol Sills, she told me that um, she knew that Paul was into Martin Buber, and so she got a book herself, and that was a commonality. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was, Paul was amazing, and, you know, so sharp and, you know, smart. Yeah, the spiritual part was not expected. Um, I mean, I had an experience when I was 10 years old, where I was drawing in my room, and I suddenly felt the swirling feeling inside. It wasn't nausea. It was like, almost like my, I wanted to lift up out of my chair. And I remember just giving myself permission and I ended up seeing myself drawing, like I went above myself. It was a beautiful feeling. I was just looking down at myself drawing and it was a, it was like a feeling of um, openness and happiness and I just wanted it to last as long as it could. And then eventually, slowly, I, I went down to my body again and that was kind of my first taste of an out-of-body Experience. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I think we're the same generation, so we both knew about the hallucinogenics that came on the scene as we were growing up. Um, yeah, this is separate from that. It was... yeah. Oh, I know, I know, I'm sorry. I, I oh, didn't... Yeah, yeah. 
not really sorry, but I was just bringing that up as uh, yeah. a lot of us were experimenting back then with other forms of out of body, but that's just a beautiful transcendent experience you just shared, Ira. I just love that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there were some, uh, there was some film and Canadian TV of some of Paul's shows and I tried to find them, but they were very poor quality. Mm. Now, um, now Paul knew uh, David Shepard, right? Did you ever run into David Shepard during your studies at all? Okay. Yeah, no, I never did. I think he co-founded Second City with David Shepard. Yes. Yeah. I never, um, no, I never experienced. I, I think I, I did some reading, but I never met him. Yeah. And he was up in Canada after oh. the Olympic Committee said he couldn't use uh, improv olympics or whatever so uh yeah anyway let's go on to your career some more so you you continued being a musician and um you were working with paul and uh it, was there more to the story of working with paul that we haven't heard yet um no i think that was that was that though what happened for paul later is uh george morrison my t acting coach uh, Paul and Mike Nichols got together again because uh, George started um, a school in Manhattan. Uh, at, this was way after my college years called New Actors Workshop. And uh, so Paul was one of the teachers uh, that George invited and Mike Nichols was teaching. So I, I took classes with George later, uh, but at that point, actually Paul w was gone but I wasn't part of that school because I'd already studied. <laughs> um, so if I were to have a meeting with Paul, it would have been at George's new school, but that I didn't have that chance. So that, that's it. <laughs> so where did your career go then? Tell me about it because you've got an extensive background in all kinds of things, Mr. Renaissance man. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I guess, right? So, um, yeah, I, I was a working actor in New York, um, uh, touring, touring shows. And I got hired a lot as an actor who can play music uh, or a musician who could act. Not all the time, but a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So um, in all these shows I was playing, um, maybe I would pick up a guitar and play a song or for Shakespeare shows, I did a lot of New York Renaissance Festival, Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. uh, I would I would kind of, they wanted me to write music to some of the Shakespeare songs. Um, uh, I was also involved with songwriting. Um, uh, and my girlfriend and I at the time, she was in a group that uh, was called Schoolgirl. It was an acapella female group. And uh, we wrote some songs for the group, which ended up on the radio. <laughs> Wolfman Jack, remember Wolfman Jack? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, so we ended up on his show. We wrote a, we wrote a song called "The Nerd Song" for the schoolgirl band, and then somehow that song was popular, and we ended up on uh, Wolfman Jack. He interviewed me and my girlfriend <laughs> again at the time, and um, then uh, that group opened for the Clash, and uh, so I met those guys. I know, it's interesting. Yeah, it was a babies. Yeah, it's wild. It was really wild. Yes. Uh, Adam Ant, they opened for, so I met those guys. <laughs> and my own music was really in service of um, the shows I was involved in in this particular group, which had a short life. Um, 
So I did Broadway. I did off Broadway. Broadway. What shows on Broadway? And did you sing at all? Were you? Were you? Oh yeah, yeah. I was a singer, uh, singer, actor. I could move. I wasn't a dancer, but I could move well. Right, right, right. Um, the show is called "Those Were the Days," and um, it was actually a Yiddish English musical that played at the. Oh my God! It was the theater where Old Calcutta played for years on Broadway. Downtown, or was on? Was it in downtown? It was the Gershwin Theater. Oh, okay. And um, I was understudy for Bruce Adler, who was related to Stella Adler. Right. And Bruce had sung the opening song of the Aladdin, uh, Disney's Aladdin uh, cartoon. And I, so I was understudying him uh, in the lead role. And um, Eleanor Risa was the director, I remember. I remember doing <laughs> at the audition. I didn't have formal singing training at that point. Um, but I, you know, I had a good voice and she said, I will give you this role if you, uh, commit to getting, you know, serious voice lessons. I said, done. <laughs> um, Lori Wilner was in the show. Uh, Lori Wilner, uh, and I did a show off Broadway at the Cherry Lane called Hannah Senish and she was nominated for a drama desk award. I had a, I had a small role and I did music. I wrote some music for that. Steve Lutvak who wrote Gentle, um, Murderer's Guide or something on Broadway was the lead composer. And I added a couple of things and I helped with some staging because I had done parachuting. So there's a scene where Hannah, I don't know if you're familiar with Hannah Senesh. Uh, she was the first female paratrooper in World War II. She was part of the kibbutz in Israel. Uh -huh. And uh, so I think at 21, she went, um, she parachuted behind enemy lines wow. uh, in Germany and was caught, but she had a diary, which she hid. And the diary was found years later. And one of her poems became the Israeli national anthem. Wow. So her mother was alive and we toured with that. Once we finished at the Cherry Lane Theater, uh, we were in there right after True West with John Malkovich and uh, Gary Sinise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was wild in the, the dressing room. Had all these golf clubs from that show. <laughs> Smash. They had draw draw all over the walls, the world of the desert. It was it was the the energy in that dressing room after after in that their show was wild. Um, but that's a sidebar. But we we toured. Um, we met um, Hannah's mother. We met Ellie Wiesel. Um, wow. Wow. Yeah, it was extraordinary. It was a great show. I was so glad to be a part of it. And um, so that was that. And I had a lot of shows. Um, I got interested in film. And um, I was doing an NYU film to try to learn about film. And I wanted to get into film. So one of the students, NYU students, was also working as a casting director. So uh, I told him, I said, you know, I really want to get more into film. He said, well, give me your picture and resume. I'll put it on the pile. He <laughs> <laughs> put it on the pile and I got a call two days later. Sylvia Fay uh, was the casting agency. And they called me in, uh, I met her, and she wanted me to uh, stand in for, um, oh God, what's the name of the actor? It was a Tom Berenger movie, uh -huh. Chick Venera, Venero, that was the actor I stood in for. So uh, all of a sudden I was on set, standing in for Chick Venero, and it's exactly what I could have hoped for, like to learn about this yeah. How does a film set work? How do, and I'm, you know, as an as a stand-in, you're right in with the camera crew, like you're right there. So I was just absorbing. That job ended, and then two days later, 
Sylvia called me again uh, to stand in for Al Pacino on uh, Sea of Love. Wow. wow. His photo double. <laughs> so now we're on, now I'm on that set. Uh, and again, the, uh, um, the experience was just perfect. Mm. Um, and I think we shot for th three months. Um, and uh, Al, Al was great. Um, very focused. Um, you know, when he's on set, he was just in his zone. But he always, you know, I would show him, uh, you know, as a stand-in. I don't know if you're familiar with stand-in work at all. Yeah, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So, you know, they'd go through the camera motions and you'd walk the sidewalk, the sidewalk. And, you know, I'd always, he would say, you know, is there, how's the sidewalk? Is there any bumps? I said, yeah, watch over there by the tree. It kind of slopes, you know, just helping. And so that was awesome. And then near the end of that, the cameraman, uh, his name is Dick Mingalone. Uh, came up to me and he said, uh, he's from Brooklyn. He goes, Hey kid, uh, uh, I also am cameraman for Woody Allen and, uh, Woody's looking for a new stand in. So, uh, you, you really do a great job. Uh, I know <laughs> he said, I want you to, you know, uh, if you're interested, go to Todd Thaler's office. And he gave me the address. So Todd Thaler was casting, um, stand-ins and, uh, I remember meeting Todd and he looked at me, he says, well, you're the right height. And I hear you do good work, but, you know, you got to change your hair color. You got to look more like Woody Allen. And I was like, oh, I said, I think I could do that. <laughs> okay, well, we'll do what you can and, and meet me back here in a week in the office, right? So what I did was I, I started watching Woody movies. I was a Woody Allen fan at the time. And um, I got the fake nose and the glasses. Um, and I took off the nose because they were similar to Woody's glasses. And my uh, college mate who helped me get this apartment on, uh, in Soho, um, he knew Woody Allen's hair hairstylist. So he got me the exact color of Woody's hair. And so I dyed my hair <laughs> and I just started, you know, you know, acting like Woody. And, uh, and I met Todd and he looked at me and he, and he said, that's it, that's it. So he sent me to where they were doing screen tests. And uh, so I, I forget where it was, 52nd. It was on the west side, 52nd Street or something. And uh, I remember going in and, uh, and there was Martin Landau. Uh, the film was uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, um, and there were a lot of um, – Mia was in that movie. Yeah, Mia was in that. There were a lot of Mia Farrow types for stand-ins in the in the waiting room right. but i didn't see any other woodies <laughs> and i was like that's interesting and then the assistant director uh you know said ira come on over and uh i heard a lot about you and i was like okay and i was just standing there kind of you know and he he w literally walked around me 360 and said well you got the hair you got the right height i hear you do great work you're hired and it was just like that. <laughs> so I ended up work, working with Woody for three years on three different pictures. Oh, wow. Which pictures? Uh, it was Crimes and Misdemeanors. Uh, the second one was a Paul, oh, my God, Paul Mazursky film um, called Scenes from a Mall. Uh -huh. Kind of proof of uh, Scenes from a Marriage. Uh, so Woody was the actor, Bette Midler. Uh, um, yeah, that was amazing. That was, and I was on that set a long time. 
Um, Bet was awesome. And, you know, I, I had a good relationship with Woody. Um, so we shot that. And then uh, there was a third film called Shadows and Fog. A very obscure film, but everybody was on that. Um, Jodie Foster, Lily Tomlin, John Cusack. I have a funny Fred Gwynn story. <laughs> yeah, let's hear it. So um, we were, I think at this point, we were at the Astoria Kaufman Studios. Uh-huh. Uh, big soundstage. Yep. And uh, it was very empty in one area, and they set up the makeup area. A couple of barbershop chairs and lots of mirrors. And I, I forget, I was going to another part of the building, um, and there was Fred Gwynn sitting on the barbershop chair, one of my all time favorites. Yeah. Like way back with on the waterfront, you know, when he was young, gangster, and, you know, through all his career. And I was like, he was like, oh my goodness. I mean, I met a lot of stars. And, you know, you learn how to just be cool, even though, you know, I was like, wow. So he knew my name. He goes, hey, Ira, <laughs> come on over. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, Fred Squid is calling me over to the barbershop chair. I guess I'll go. So um, <laughs> I'm sitting next to him, and he says to me, and he's so tall. He yeah, says, yeah. He says to me, um, I'm kind of nervous. And I said, oh, uh, why? He says, well, Woody only gives us like the scenes. He doesn't give us the whole script. So I, you know, I don't know where I'm coming from and you know, what's where I'm going. And, and, uh, I said, and I went, Oh yeah, yeah. Woody, Woody really wants everybody to be just on their toes. You know, that's why he does that. And I said to him, I said, but you're Fred Gwynn, you know exactly what to do. And he, he, he sat back and he laughed. He goes, yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's great. I love that story. It's wonderful, Ira. Yeah, yeah, really fun. Yeah, so um, I ended up getting into that Broadway show, um, and you know, uh, Woody started giving me little bits to do because he knew, you know, I was interested to get more on screen. So I think I played a cadaver. Um, <laughs> one scene. It's another funny story. <laughs> it was right after lunch. And I'm lying on a gurney, like a hospital bed. Yeah. And the sheet is over me, but my toe is sticking out with a tag. Right. Put all kinds of like scalpels and blood and stuff. And, uh, you know, and I was just relaxing so I could be dead. Right. And have my stomach move. I was practicing, you know. <laughs> and uh, the crew came and they were setting up. And uh, I must have fallen asleep. Because all of a sudden I heard clang, 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 because I was snoring and everything, my belly got moved and everything ended up on the floor. <laughs> I said, hey, Ari, you think you could stay awake for these shots? <laughs> yeah, so that was that. And then I got the Broadway show and, um, you know, I, I stopped the stand and work um, so I could do that show. And, uh, you know, Woody was great, uh, very amicable. This was uh, just at the start of his troubles, but the, the you know uh, the, the the press called me. I remember that it was it got now starting to get crazy, and uh, I just remember him saying to me, um, "I'd like to see the show. Uh, get me a seat by the door." <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so that was my Woody Allen experience. And then I went on to do more shows, and um, then the music took a, a big leap forward uh, unexpectedly. With uh, I had auditioned for um, National Theater of the Deaf uh, up in Chester, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. They came into New York, actually. And uh, I remember doing a Shakespeare monologue with some balloon animals or something. Like, wow, yeah. <laughs> And I'm laughing, and and then they, ca- I remember they called me up to Chester. The theater company was based in Chester at the time, and the artistic director was uh, Will Reese. Um, the founder was David Hayes, um, who I didn't realize had designed. He was a set designer initially, and had designed all of uh, Balanchine, George Balanchine's set. Wow! Wow! Yeah, That's impressive. Yeah. Oh yeah, David was great, great, great uh, artist. In fact, I have one of his prints of a show he, he designed up here that I was in uh, of the set design and uh, beautiful work. And um, David and I think Anne Bancroft uh, started or came up with the National Theater of the Deaf idea. Um, and they had won Tony Awards. So by the time I got there, I think it was 30 years old. And uh, the show, oh no, the audition. Oh, right. They asked me to read the script. And they asked what musical idea, because they were very interested in my music abilities as well as my acting abilities. And I had, uh, it reminded me, sorry, I'm a little tongue-tied. This is early for me. (laughs) (laughs) I remember the script was a French farce, and it was like a cartoon. It reminded me of cartoon music. And I was a fan of Spike Jones. um, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I had a couple of his albums. Right. So that was running through my head as I was reading, and I said to to uh, Will, the artistic director, I said, "Will, this is like this reminds me of Spike Jones' uh, music." And he went, "Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's a great idea." <laughs> so he hired me um, to voice for the lead actor, and com- create a score, compose a score for the whole show, t- uh, two hour show, and play the score live. That was my assignments. So number one, he wanted me to play on an electronic drum set, which I'd never done. And uh, they were going to put me in an Eiffel Tower upstage center, like a replica, uh-huh, uh-huh. where uh, they had a, uh, the bottom of it. I could put the electronic drums and a keyboard and whatever other percussion toys I wanted. I had done some scoring work before this, so I, you know, I was more in the groove with it. Uh, it was a show called Ian Escapade, which we did for the Library of Congress with Ruby D. And um, oh my God, you know, so um, so I, but I had to buy a computer and figure out how to compose this score. Um, my scoring work was mostly percussion, and this was different. This was real, you know, melodies and things like that. So I remember uh, asking a friend of mine about software because I knew he had it, and I bought. A laptop, a Macintosh. It was like this big, right, right. And uh, digital performer software, and I bought electronic drum pads so I could figure out how to work that. And I just started figuring out. This was before rehearsal started, so I had some time to kind of learn. And then I remember going to a summer workshop, and I think I met Troy Kutzer, who had toured with National Theater of the Deaf. He's up for an Oscar right now. Oh my God! Welcome to voiceover. Harley Matlin. Voiceover speaks descriptions of items on the screen. Oh, sorry. Oh, that's okay. 
what that was. So can, um, could you repeat that again? I'm sorry. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, I had met Troy Kutzer because they had a summer program, but they were also rehearsing some scenes and workshop. And he had toured with Mar um, National Theater of the Deaf as well as Marley Matlin. Uh, so that was cool just to, you know, you know, meet him. At that time, you know, now he's he's really getting great recognition. Of animals running around. So doggy. Yeah. Um uh so tell me what you're doing today. Um right now. What's going on in your life right now? We've met a couple of times through Aretha's classes, and I always like it when you're in the class because of oh, your thank energy you. and your commitment and it's always it's fun to play wonderful. with you. So. Pardon? It's fun to play with you too. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, I feel like a, a novice, though, compared, and it's not good to compare oneself, but still, it's. I feel like a novice. It's only been a few years that I've been really studying, but I've always loved Spolin. Since I started improv, I've always liked Spolin, my favorite teacher, mm. really. But so, what's going on today for you, Ira? Um, well, right now, I'm working on a film um, with a friend of mine from Sweden. Um, and we're working through Zoom. Um, we're writing a story about uh, two old friends, and uh, we're in the really nascent stages of writing this. Uh, but I've asked Aretha to come and uh, coach us with some of the games that help generate. Yes. Yeah, so we're setting, she said she would love to, and so we're going to set up a date um, for that. Um, so we're just in the beginning of that. We'll shoot it in Manhattan. Um, and. Uh, so that's that project. I have a lot of, I built a recording studio, ended up getting a Grammy nomination. And, um, so I built a recording studio in, um, 2002. And, um, so I have a lot of, uh, clients that I. We froze for a minute. 